0: This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Probably the worst part of Carlos Maza's job is that he has to watch a lot of TV about Donald Trump.
1: Hi, my name is Carlos Maza and I produce a video series for Vox.com called Strike Through, which is uh, focusing on journalism and media in the age of Trump.
0: Since he's watched more TV news coverage of Trump than maybe anyone else who is not currently on the Donald Trump White House staff, I asked Carlos to tell me the top three emotions he experiences while watching the endless news cycle.
1: Number one is please stop. Like there's just too much stuff for any human to process, which is not a critique of media, it's just a critique of the world. It's just Even a really good news consumer, I think, is like probably overwhelmed and burnt out because there's too much stuff to focus on. It's like watching a show that never stops introducing plot lines We're like, I don't know what's happening anymore.
0: It's like like we're all trapped in an episode of Lost and it just keeps getting worse.
1: Doubling over on itself. You're like, I don't know who the main character is. I don't know who I want to die on this.
0: It may be a little too apt to compare our current political situation to a disappointing and bewildering TV show because, after all, a reality TV star is literally our president. Since Election Day, it's been difficult, for me at least, to listen to him on the radio or on TV because it just so often is terrible and confusing. I often find myself asking, wait, did Donald Trump actually say that is that is that real is it that absurd or was that alec baldwin making fun of donald trump Uh,
2: come on brooke i was trying to look cool i mean what normal red-blooded american doesn't want to impress the billy bush let's be honest we're living in the real world this is nothing more than a distraction from the important issues we're facing today we are losing our jobs we're less safe than we were eight years ago And Washington is totally broken. Hillary Clinton and her kind have run our country into the ground. The line
0: between fiction and reality, between what was once unthinkable and is now happening, comes across as very blurred in the news coverage of Trump. There are alternative facts, and people say we live in a, quote, post-truth world. But a lot of lines shouldn't be blurry. There are things that are true, and there are things that are totally made up. Sorting through them and making sense of complicated issues is a job of journalism, right? Anyway, if you're anything like me, you've been doing a lot of shouting at the television in the last couple months, or maybe shouting at the internet or at the radio. Media is the way that we come to understand the world and what happens in it, and what we as regular people can do to shape our societies. And this role, this reality, has been altered in some pretty big and disturbing ways under Trump. To make sense of the way that Trump has changed our media, I called up two brilliant people. Carlos Maza. Hey, it's me. And media critic extraordinaire Jen Posner.
2: My name is Jennifer Posner. I am the executive director of Women in Media and News and the author of Reality Bites Back, The Troubling Truth About Guilty Pleasure TV. For
0: anyone who is worried about what's happening to journalism in the Trump era and in the future beyond, this episode is for you. It might not make you feel better about the world, but at least it will make you feel less alone. So, as you remember, I asked Carlos Mazza to explain the top three things he feels when watching news coverage of Trump. We covered point one, please stop. <laughs> now point two.
1: The second feeling is, oh, come come the F on. Um, just like feeling like I'm in uh, some surreal upside down version of the world where people who are very smart are talking about things in a way that's very stupid and neutral when they should not be. Um, And the third feeling is, oh, thank God, because there are like some bright spots of really good journalism. And uh, when you're feeling powerless, I think like the reason we care so much about the media is because at least you want the story about what's happening to you to be right. And so when you see a really good moment of journalism, you're like, oh, thank God. Okay. Yes, that's exactly how I see the world. That is what's happening. I am not crazy. And also there are people who have some influence and power who are describing the world as, as it is, and that can be a very good feeling. I feel like so much of uh, people who are worried about Trump I think are putting a lot of stock in media because it's like, it feels like the last real, tangible check on power. And so when it does do well, you're like, okay, like a moment of relief in the, the nonstop firestorm that is the past few months.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, that it does feel like media is our last check on power because if Republicans control... Every level of our government, from uh, state legislatures to Congress to courts to the presidency, it feels like it can feel it can feel really hopeless. Like, where do we yeah. go from here?
1: Yeah, I think even if you don't see the media that way, if you think that people like citizens and public opposition is the last real check on power, it's like hard to see that working if media is not going well because the way the citizen the citizenry like understands that something bad is happening and gets pissed off is because they're getting accurate information about it. So when media fails in that sense, it's like, even if you think the media is useless, we do need it to understand what to be upset about and what not to be upset about, and when to go vote and when to protest. Um, And so it's just like a very important choke point of any kind of public opposition towards uh, positions of power.
0: How is your feeling about the possibility of citizen action changed since Trump has started shaping our media. Do you feel like we're still in a world where we can have an informed citizenry that goes and cares about things and protests them and votes on stuff or are you getting increasingly full of despair in this world of fake news? I've been hearing the term we're in a post-truth world Mm -hmm. and I don't know how to wrap my brain around that or about what that means about what we should do in the world.
1: Yeah and I don't think I have a a great answer I'll say I am obviously super anxious and nervous about What happens when the office, the most powerful office in the government is using its platform to convince voters that they should not trust credible sources of information and just like have basic questions about whether or not there's an agreed upon, whether or not there's a shared reality that we can agree upon. Um, I think that that has existed long before Trump and a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I have have pointed this out, That like so much of Fox News's ascendancy is because it just created this like alternative version of the world people really liked. And so if you wanted to live in that like upside down, you've had the option to for a while. The ascendancy of that like post-truth world has put a lot of pressure on journalists, mainstream journalists to act differently. The fact that stuff is so wild and bonkers means that journalists who have, I think, gotten away with kind of playing it middle of the road and trying to not take a position on issues they should be taking uh, positions on, feel this pressure Mm -hmm. to inject some more reason into a debate that's consistently getting overwhelmed by bullshit. And I think that that's good, that that like, we're, the extremeness of the current situation is causing some journalists to be like, I have to change my behavior in response. And I think that behavior change is long overdue and actually very healthy. Um, so I, I can see it going both ways. And my constant feeling is just, I'm nervous. So that's a, it's not a good or a bad feeling. It's just, God, I hope we all make it, <laughs> which is, I feel probably the feeling for everyone right now.
0: Um, well, let's talk about the first thing that you said you feel when you start reading the news, which is like, what the hell, how can this be happening? How do you feel like Donald Trump has has changed the way that news is written and changed the behavior of traditional journalists, people who work for big newspapers, big television stations?
1: In a couple of ways. One is that he acts in a way that does just generate a lot more newsworthy sensational stories. So... Part of it is his use of Twitter. Part of it is that he just like doesn't abide by typical standard procedure for doing things like announcing major shifts in foreign policy. That stuff happens like a lot more unexpectedly and ad hoc. So I think journalists are consistently playing, um, are playing how, defense isn't the right word, but journalists are consistently operating from a place of reaction as opposed to I did this digging and so I know something is happening. Um, and that's not just true for journalists. That's true for like everybody who has internet connection that where a lot of it is reacting in real time to things that are just happening at a much faster pace. Um, I think Trump too has forced us, has forced journalists to think about news in a more nuanced way. I think in the Obama presidency or in the Bush presidency, if either of them have tweeted or said any one thing that Trump tweets, it would undoubtedly be newsworthy because it would be so unusual. Everything that Trump tweets is so sensational and like, this fight with Meryl Streep is a really good example. Like, if Obama did that, that would be super newsworthy and interesting. But in the Trump era, it happens so often, and there are so many sensational things going on that journalists have to ask the second question, which is, not only is it interesting, is this important? Is this significant to my audience? Does this affect the material conditions of their lives? And if not, can I ignore it? And I think some news outlets have done a good job of answering that question, and some have not done a good job of answering that question. Some have just taken the... We'll treat everything equally and just deal with the news cycle as it, ha- as it hits us, and I think that screws over everyone. It screws over the reporters who are like constantly overworked, and it screws over the audiences who like don't understand how to separate between real story and bullshit. Um, I think the other challenge that's happened is that another challenge that journalists face is that the there's been, I think, an understanding that when the White House says stuff, there's at least an attempt to make it seem like it might be true, like there's an attempt to not get caught lying um, or to say things that journalists could have, could in good faith say this might be true. I don't think that's true for Trump and there's a bunch of big urge or for Spicer or for this White House in general. There are a lot of examples of this White House saying things that are just like obviously blatantly, this is obviously dumb and, and not true. And that's, I think that poses a challenge to the way that reporters cover it. So one example of this is in headlines that, Typically, if in an Obama White House or a Bush White House, the president said something, the headline would just be, the president said this thing, this is newsworthy. Now, because the president is saying something that, that is very obviously false, if you were to run that same headline, that's very misleading. If you're running a headline that says, Trump claims millions voted illegally, you need to actually insert this other part of that headline, which is like, by the way, that is bananas and bullshit. Um, there's this extra work that reporters have to do when they're doing record-keeping about the White House, which is making sure that they're not peddling and repeating misinformation. I think that that is something that they always should have done, but it is especially important in in the area of Trump.
0: I think that dynamic where Trump says things that are patently untrue, that um, are just made-up fiction, and then reporters have to respond to that by adding caveats to everything that he says when they're reporting on it, plays into this conception that media is biased and that media is trying to undermine Trump all the time. I can imagine somebody reading a headline that says, "Trump claims millions vo- voted illegally," no evidence for that, and saying, "Oh, look, what Trump is saying is true." The media is out to get him. Like, it's it's. I just think that we're in this this kind of bad cycle right now where everything we do plays into this idea that you can't trust the media.
1: Yeah, and the the flip side of that is that if you don't include that debunk, that audiences tend to believe the lie and internalize it as true just through like osmosis they just start to think that that misinformation so it's it's you can't just like not include the debunk because people start believing it then so it's kind of a it's, it's a double edged sword i do think that there are ways of debunking that are more effective than others what you're what you're alluding to is that for people who already support trump that debunks can actually have a, a backfire effect that it it causes them to become re entrenched in the myth because they feel protective of their candidate or their president, or they just don't want to believe the thing that they believe is wrong. And that's not just true of Trump supporters. Every human has this like natural bias against correction and debunking, where they don't want to admit they made a mistake. Um, there, are, there's been a lot of research about this, and there are ways to debunk more effectively and to kind of like deal with that part of human bias bias. But that just hasn't been a concern that journalists, especially journalists working on deadlines, have had to take into consideration before. And I think that. The extremeness and uniqueness of Trump is forcing journalists to have to be a lot more thoughtful about how they go about dealing with misinformation and how they accommodate the people who believe in Trump and take his word very seriously and are suspicious of them without giving too much room to misinformation, how to kind of walk that line. And I think you're seeing some really creative and some really unsuccessful ways of kind of navigating those two, those two pressures.
0: Yeah, it's totally true that the way to make a myth become a mainstream value is to just repeat it enough until yeah. people believe that it's true. So that's something that you do a lot in your video work is try and debunk common myths and misconceptions and explain why they're wrong in a really thoughtful way. So can you explain to me any, any strategies you've found or that you've seen in other people's work about actually successful ways to debunk myths and to counter fake news or false ideas when they're coming from somebody such as the president?
1: Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of research on this, and some of these I think are easier to do than others. Um, one of the things that's really powerful for debunking a myth um, that research shows is really effective is if you get somebody from the ideological camp of the person you're trying to convince to, to agree with you. So during that, during the debate about whether or not millions of people voted illegally, when News networks were interviewing Republican attorneys general or uh, state Republican leaders who were coming out and saying this voter fraud thing is BS, I am in charge of this oversight and it doesn't happen, that was really effective because an audience is more likely to trust someone who they believe is similar to them and has their same ideological background and they can't just dismiss as being, oh, you're the enemy, you're the opponent. So finding validators from the other side is a really useful tool. Um, not repeating it a million times, prioritizing the reality as opposed to the, the falsehood is a really simple and almost like dumb way of stopping a, a lie from being spread. Um, giving some explanation as to why a lie is being told is really, is really helpful. Giving the audience a motive or why someone would be dishonest to them is really important because the human brain needs a story to replace their original story. So if your original story is millions of people voted illegally, there's widespread voter fraud, just saying Trump lied is not enough of a story to replace that. You need to say Trump lied, he's basing this off a long-term conservative myth that has been used to promote voter ID laws that undermine Democratic voters. That makes a lot more sense, and that's easier for the brain to replace because it's not just there's this incorrect belief. It's There's, in, there's this incorrect belief, and there's a reason why people believe it. I am not an idiot for believing this thing. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, I think there's a bunch that we can talk about this, but one thing that I found really effective and that I try to use in the work that I do is um, humor or uh, humanity and, like, vulnerability um, to calm down an audience's fears or anxieties they might have about you as a source of information. Um, a lot of things that I do in my videos are like making jokes um, or revealing personal information that has nothing to do with the argument, just like showing you that I'm a person. It's the reason that I want to start doing video work as opposed to written work, is because there is a part of us as humans that like wants to like and trust other people, and the more that we can establish that on the outset that like I am a person too, and I am living in the same country and trying to make the most sense of this, the more naturally we trust, we are we are trusting each other it's it's just like how if you are really anxious about gay people if you meet a gay person and talk to them about your favorite food for an hour you're like naturally a lot more tolerant and open and warm with them because you see similarities and so part of what makes satire so powerful and part of what makes i think like video work so powerful is that you can show the person you're talking to like look I'm a person I'm not a monster I'm not trying to kill you I'm not your enemy uh, I have a disagreement with you. Here's my best argument for why I have this disagreement. Do um, so you kind of see where I'm coming from? And I think there's something about that, like, shared warmth, that comes with talking and, like, being funny and having a side that I think satire does so well that I think can counteract or kind of, like, put on pause people's natural defensiveness when it comes to having information they believe debunked. Um, it's not an exact science, but I think that can be really helpful.
0: Speaking of which, what what is your favorite food?
1: Oh my god. Uh, I'm obsessed with the flavored almonds from Trader Joe's. I eat them until I get sick. I'm vegetarian, but their Mesquite barbecue ones taste like meat, and I eat them until I like physically cannot talk to people. It's like my biggest vice.
0: They like burn your tongue?
1: (laughs) They burn my tongue, and the only solution is to put a whole bunch more of them in your mouth, and you're like, I've eaten 86 servings of almonds, and I have to go to work tomorrow, and I don't feel good.
0: Uh, but no, I think <laughs> all, all Trader Joe's Almond's jokes aside, I think that's actually a really sweet and optimistic, that's the most sweet and optimistic message I've heard about media and Trump in a long time. That actually humans, the human desire to believe and trust people, which is so often exploited and manipulated uh, these days with our with um, Trump's statements and our media outlets, is something you can harness for the power of good. And that's something I think about a lot with storytelling. Like humans respond really strongly to stories. We don't respond as strongly to data. And one mistake I make, and I think a lot of reporters make, is just trying to hit people over the head with data to tell them why something is right or why something is wrong. And it doesn't work as well as telling a story about something that can tie into people's identity as well as their sense of the world. And so while that tendency to believe stories and Kind of fudge over or forget data is really disturbing in a lot of ways. We can we can harness that power in some ways.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that that's not like a feel good hippy dippy new age thing. I think there's like there's actually a bunch of psychological research that does show that humans, like you said, prioritize storytelling, prioritize personalities, prioritize warmth over raw data, um, and. Part of the one of the benefits of that like storytelling approach and the, the humanity approach is that it does implicit in that is an understanding that I as a speaker know I might be wrong, and I as a speaker understand where you are coming from and don't think you're an idiot for believing that that, there, that there's like a level of, of uh, equal vulnerability that comes with being a human when you talk to people about this stuff and tell stories that shows that it's almost like owning up to your to your perspective and bias makes you more trustworthy
0: yeah the the biggest example of the sort of human-centered storytelling approach to reporting on trump that that you were just talking about is of course satire is is this is this for you the shining point of coverage in trump is are these people who are actually doing the best job even though they're not the like traditional reporters
1: it's more nuanced than i think those satirists are not reporters so it's wrong to equate them with like Someone like Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, who like spends time developing sources and can reveal information that most people don't have access to. That is the thing that is solely the within the purview of actual journalists, um, and they do that very well. And I don't think satire is appropriate in those cases. Where satire is appropriate is explaining to audiences why any of that stuff matters, why how they should place all the news they're getting into their brains and how it affects them and why they should care about certain stories. So I'm more interested in comparing satirists, satirists to the hosts of CNN or the people who host morning talk shows. Um, and what satirists get that I think CNN does so badly is that to do effective storytelling and to do effective reporting, you need to be able to describe the world as it is and be able to say no to certain perspectives. I think CNN's model, especially during their primetime coverage, is... There's a dispute happening. We will allow everyone to speak about this dispute who has an opinion and let the, let the audience decide. And that's actually very bad for the human brain. It doesn't encourage critical thinking, you're getting yelled at, you tend to just gravitate, gravitate towards the people who already agree with you, and also you're not getting any useful information. And another problem with CNN is that they give those people like 15 minutes of prep time to prepare for a segment. Most of them are not experts on the issue they're talking about, they're just like pundits. and so. You're literally watching people who don't know what the hell they're talking about scream at each other for 10 minutes and then being like, commercial break. It's just not good for the brain. What satire does really well is that it doesn't entertain bullshit. It laughs at bullshit. And so you're spending less time focusing on arguments that are really dumb, talking points that are really dumb. Um, It's not concerned with theater. It's concerned with reality. And so satire dispenses with talking points very efficiently. It's like this is – here's a talking point. It's either true or false. Move on. It's not – Curious about why they said it this way, the kind of the theater that, that uh, political news coverage is typically concerned with, and what makes satire so effective in terms of educating viewers is that what sarcasm does to the brain, or what jokes do to the brain, is it forces you to think to get why the joke is funny. So um, an example is if I was if I were to tell you, yeah, I had a great day today. You're, I'm actually forcing you to, to, to realize that I'm not telling you the truth that I actually had a bad day, and that little process of being like, oh, that's not what you mean, you're telling a joke, forces the brain to engage more critically in information. And that means that you process information better. It just like turns your brain on in a way that hearing people scream at each other on a panel does not. Um, And part of what I think news coverage does incorrectly is it talks about absurd shit with this really level tone and that signals to the audience that you should take it kind of seriously too. Like the Trump wiretapping thing, if you were just to say Trump says he was wiretapped uh, by Obama at Trump Tower, that's not true. That doesn't really communicate how silly this is, like how absurd it is, in a way that a joke does. And so, more than just the information that's being communicated, satire can really effectively communicate how you should feel about something, how silly you should you should see something as, and how much weight you should give to an idea. And that's a really important part of news coverage that I think, um, like the traditional straight news reporting, kind of misses out on. And it's why I've had so much of that second feeling of watching CNN and being like. What are we talking about right now? This is bonkers, and not having anyone on TV who, who mirrors that for you.
0: That was Carlos Maza. As you would expect, he is hilarious on Twitter at gaywonk. You can also watch his video series, Strike Through, about media criticism in the Trump era at fox.com. Next up. Jen Posner talks with us about how reality TV show The Apprentice helped facilitate its star becoming our real life president. In trying to figure out how the team here at Bitch can best grapple with our current dystopian media situation, we came across the word cacistocracy. What the heck is a kakistocracy, you ask? It's a Greek word, meaning government by the worst people. A state or a country that's run by the worst, least qualified, or most unscrupulous citizens. Hmm, that sounds alarmingly familiar right about now. In March, Bitch launched a new series of articles called Feminists United to Combat Cacastocracy in Trump Times List, aka the Fuck It List. The Fuck It List aims to combat the Trumpification of our pop culture. The Fuck It List will be updated at bitchmedia.org every last week of the month, with analysis on a new terrible term from the Trump administration's lexicon. It's thoughtful, rigorous, and feminist consideration of what his distinct brand of propaganda really means and why it matters. Check out the fuck it list at bitchmedia.org, where you're welcome to suggest new words and stuff we should cover with both humor and acidity in these chaotic times of cacistocracy. Okay, back to the show. I've been traveling internationally in the last couple months, and whenever I meet a stranger and tell them I'm from the United States, our conversation inevitably winds up with them asking one question. So why did you guys elect Trump? I have a whole spiel in response to this, involving everything from voter ID laws to the role of white supremacy, but media unmistakably played a huge role in this election, and it's hard to unwind the giant, messy ball of string that is media's influence on the election. But for the spring print issue of Bitch Magazine, Jen Posner wrote a feature article about how specifically NBC and reality TV show The Apprentice helped shape the public image of Trump into someone who could conceivably run for president. It's called All in the Family, NBC and the Manufacturing of Donald Trump. If you're not one of the millions of people who has ever actually watched The Apprentice, just as a refresher, it's this show. Andy,
1: you're just being pounded on. You're being out-debated. I just don't want somebody running one of my companies that's going to get beaten up so badly. You're fired.
0: Okay, so Jen is the founder of the group Women in Media and News and is the author of Reality Bites Back, which it certainly did in this case. And she's currently working on a book about media's complicity in Trump's rise to
2: power. Amusingly, Ivanka Trump... This morning on CBS told Gail King that she did not know what it means to be complicit. And so then Merriam-Webster's tweeted at her the definition of complicity. There are going to be a lot of ways, a lot of really weird ways history looks back on this time period, right? It's
0: often a little hard to parse out what's important and what's not when you're right in the middle of something. So I asked Jen how historians in 50 years would look back on the role that The Apprentice played in his campaign.
2: It's going to be increasingly clear. I hope that um, that NBC and The Apprentice really played a massive role in normalizing and um, and cre- not just normalizing, but um, but creating a false sense of authority and a false sense of competence for Donald Trump for more than a decade before which he was. Uh, I should say, without which he would never have been able to run in the first place. Um, What I mean by that, uh, The Apprentice, which is a show that uh, pretended for 11 years or so, um, nearly every week, uh, that Donald Trump held the keys to the American dream in his hands, that he was the epitome of success, of authority, of um, saying telling it like it is, but in a way that needs to happen so that um, people can make money and do good deals and get ahead. Um, and all of those, all of those ways that authority was bestowed on Trump by NBC and by Mark Burnett, the producer of The Apprentice, um, alongside. Donald Trump, who was also an executive producer of *The Apprentice*, creating his own narrative and learning through Mark Burnett how to create his own narrative, um, that authority, uh, the image of authority, I should say, uh, was specifically crafted in a manipulative and false manner to uh, to confuse and uh, and mislead viewers into believing this was the real Donald Trump, not. The guy who was multiply bankrupt and sued for fraud numerous times.
0: The whole idea of The Apprentice is that Donald Trump is a super successful business owner who knows everything about running a successful enterprise. The contestants on the show compete for the chance just to work with him. Given the facts of reality, you could just as easily have made a show where Donald Trump is some kind of symbol of what not to do in business. A guy who inherited a bunch of money from his family, filed for bankruptcy multiple times, and has been sued repeatedly for fraud. But that's not the narrative The Apprentice was selling.
2: You know, they took a couple of minutes of footage every week of Donald Trump and, in, and left hours of footage of him off to the side. Anybody can be made to seem authoritative and uh, intelligent and competent if you just take, you cherry pick just a couple of minutes and then if you leave all of his racist ranting and his uh, pussy grabbing off camera. So of course they didn't want us to see that.
0: During the presidential campaign, a producer from The Apprentice's first season, Bill Pruitt, wrote a letter in Vanity Fair about how The Apprentice misled Americans, about who Trump is. He wrote, we were, quote, entertaining. And the story about Donald Trump and his stature fell into some bizarre public record as, quote, truth. Now that the lines of fiction and reality have blurred to the horrifying extent that they have, those involved in the media must have their day of reckoning about how complicit the media and social media
2: outlets have been in getting us to where we are now. Wow. Reality TV, more than any other genre, manipulates the audience because with, with sitcoms, with dramas, we understand innately that even with the most realistic, gritty, uh, gritty uh, narrative, there are actors reading scripts written by writers, filmed by producers, and that this is a, a fictional process and we get to be entertained by it. Maybe we get to learn something by it if it's one of those sort of socially responsible types of programming efforts. But we understand that this isn't the truth. It's a, maybe at best, it's a reflection of true attitudes and values people might have, experiences, right, that uh, that actors can tap into. But with reality television, this is a genre that builds itself. As the truth, most viewers don't know that for an hour, an average hour of The Apprentice or even an average hour of The Bachelor or any, you know, Real Housewife, whatever favorite show you have, um, you're seeing less than 1% of what went on. They usually will have filmed more than 100 hours of tape. Um, and then, if you take out commercials, then that's basically 46 minutes or so of content. So you're seeing less than 1% of all of the drama, all of the uh, sort of intrigue behind the scenes. So if you think you know who Donald Trump is because you watched him for 11 years, that's a, a reasonable assumption for you to make as a viewer if you believe the basic premise of reality TV.
0: So what about all that footage that was left on the cutting room floor? After the Access Hollywood grab him by the pussy video of Trump appeared in media, Bill Pruitt and an actor who had worked on The Apprentice both told media outlets that outtakes from The Apprentice are just as terrible.
2: And a lot of that material reportedly includes him using Uh, language, including ethnic slurs, um, misogynist language, sexually harassing women who worked for him, um, both in terms of staff on the show, as well as contestants. Um, And so all of that, again, if we, if viewers had known that that was the real Donald Trump and not um, this sort of faux authority figure who has turned into an authoritarian figure, we would have been able to see what was coming. And I doubt that he would have had a platform to run in the first place. But they didn't say, oh, we just won't release them. We don't want to. They said, no, we, we're not allowed to release the tapes because um, because the tapes are owned by this production company. Well, Mark Burnett, when he was approached to release the tapes, said he couldn't release the tapes. And NBC was the one ha- who had the legal uh, uh, responsibility or permission to to, could grant permission or not. And then it turns out Mark Burnett is is the owner of the production company that NBC is saying has the ability or not to release the tapes. So basically it's a giant pass the buck that ends up exactly where Burnett and NBC and Donald Trump wanted it to end up, which is keep the reality TV sausage making process a secret. Don't show anybody any raw footage. It would inevitably and irrevocably damage the image of supposed reality, supposed truth uh, of what the apprentice had pretended that Donald Trump was. I think in the in the feature, I called it um, a disingenuous corporate circle jerk because all of that footage which by the way I wouldn't say that um, that anyone using ethnic slurs is worse than admitting to sexual assault but I think it's all bad right like there's a lot of uh, reportedly really bad behavior and and language on those tapes um, The problem is that uh, Mark Burnett holds on to uh, holds on to his secrets um, like the you know the biggest, uh, patriarch of any commercial endeavor, uh, you know, it, you don't want to reveal how the sausage gets made as a reality TV producer. So in general, um, he has sued uh, people who've leaked information about his reality shows in the past. Um, but when it comes to Trump, who's been one of his biggest moneymakers, um, and it should also be note, I, noted, I didn't have space to write this in the feature, but um, Trump now is in charge of telecommunications policy. He is in charge of setting regulations for the media companies that, um, that will stand to make billions based on, or lose billions based on his decisions. One of which is uh, the company on whose payroll he still remains because of his role in The Celebrity Apprentice and not giving up his executive producer credit or compensation.
0: The way race and gender played out on The Apprentice, on the footage that actually made it onto the air, not on the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor, foreshadowed the way Trump would demean women
2: and people of color in his campaign. White supremacy and misogyny played out in that show in the explicit framing of all of the contestants and uh, and how we were supposed to, as viewers, understand women and people of color and white men in the workplace. What Mark Burnett and Donald Trump did as executive producers, was frame women contestants consistently as mentally and professionally inferior uh, to their male counterparts on the show. Um, They consistently framed uh, women of color in particular as angry, as having no work ethic, as lazy. And in early seasons, they were made to constantly— they were framed to seem as if they could not excel in a business environment without using their sexuality to get ahead as a way to compensate for their lack of intellect.
0: That was Jen Posner. If you want to know more about the -the behind-the-scenes crafting that goes into reality TV, Check out her book, Reality Bites Back. Even though most of it is an absolute mess, that doesn't mean we should give up on media. People are always going to care about getting information and we're always going to be drawn like moths to the raging trash fire to watch shows like The Apprentice and The Bachelor. But we need some basic understanding, some basic media literacy about what we're consuming. We need to be able to separate fact from fiction. The stakes of blurring those lines are extremely obvious these days. I feel inspired by the people who are out there working to make good media, whether they work in TV or print or just post their ideas on social media to try and push us to be better at journalism. We need journalism that asks actual questions and that makes us think about the world in new ways. Far too often, those kinds of ideas are drowned out by all the drama. dealing with all the news coming at you right now don't forget to check out the fuck it list at bitchmedia.org for a soothing balm of reason amid the chaos of our kakastocracy. the lost soundtrack heard at the beginning of this episode is courtesy R tracks music on soundcloud our jingle is by mux and owen worker additional music was provided by blue dot sessions you can look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. The show is produced by the great Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures. Popaganda is made by the team here at Bitch Media. Every episode of Popaganda is transcribed by Cheryl Green of Storyminders. We're proud to make propaganda available to people who are deaf and hard of hearing. You can find full transcripts of every show at bitchmedia.org under the podcasts tab. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit, feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you liked today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you like the show in your order comments. We actually do read them all, and it warms my heart every time. Thanks for listening.